0: wood polish with hints of oil and chlorinated water and then a kind of tangy undercrust of salt warm but the outside was cold. It's much more Playful and of the moment. Much less predictable. The ways it can go are not so much linked to what's in front of you or to the process of eating or putting something in your mouth or sustaining yourself or doing anything practical at all that can be bound up with that. They're bound up up instead with just where you are taken by something. We are embodied animals. We think with our bodies as well as our brains. And smell can be crazy and it can be daft and it can take you in very foolish directions. My name's Tom Chatfield, and I'm a British author, broadcaster, and tech philosopher. I rather like the fact that physics reminds us that distance and time are the same thing. The further away you're looking, the further into the past you're looking, that when you look at the flat blue of the sky or the star at night, you're looking at something that happened millions of years ago. You're looking to an elsewhere, and for you to get there will cost you time. You're looking at something that is not of the now. Whereas in the sort of immediate sensory circle, you are living a now, and you are annihilating time. You're not being agonized by you know literal or metaphorical distance. There's something rather poignant for me about the fact that you know we, culturally speaking, spend huge amounts of time looking at things that are very far away, or communicating with others who are far away. And this is you know this is wonderful. This is a gift. This is great. But it's also, in some ways, very thin experience for the experiencing animal that we are. And it's it's not only thin in a sensory way, but it perhaps. Thins the texture of our presence in the moment and thins our ability to sort of bring ourselves fully to bear on, you know, where we happen to be, who we happen to be with. Memory, I like to think of as information plus emotion. Information is out there, but for it to lodge and become a part of us, there has to be a certain intensity of engagement. And I think one of the losses that worries me is that we can be very good at summoning up information from outsourced memory, but not so good at really making things a part of us and having a kind of thickly remembered experience of our, and lives, of the places we're in, and the people we're physically with. One of the earliest strong smell memories I have comes from being in the cabin of a small boat that my parents had when I was young. And it was a sort of wonderfully womb-like place. It was full of polished wood, had an oil lamp, it had a little water tank and you pumped a foot pump to get water out. It smelled safe. And I, when I was older, I would make kind of nests in the front cabin on cushions and blankets which had this sort of intense blankety smell and you'd hear all kinds of cold, clanging noises from stays and rigging and sails and flags. And then inside, there would be an oil lamp and wood and probably at some point my mum cooking very close to the place where I was sleeping because everything was close to everything else boats are an interesting thing because when my parents were divorced um, boats were sold boats, boat we didn't have lots of boats and that was a huge wrench not just because it was really nice to have a boat and I was mourning my lost privilege but because The sort of boaty space and what it represented was a very kind of intimate family zone. And, of course, everything is close in a boat, or rather some things are very far, and then everything else is very close. You're in a small, small, confined space amid a flat and sometimes hostile vastness. It's a little bit weird how important this feels to me, because, you know, obviously boating is a luxury, but... There's something about my memories of that space and concentration. And I feel it's a lovely thing for a family, especially when you have a young family, to be in a space that is all yours and that is close. Obviously, you can end up wanting to kill each other. But when it works, the intensity kind of builds up. And I think the sort of smells and the atmosphere and everything do kind of build up and it becomes it becomes your little den, it becomes your little cave. And the history layers itself and then next time you go there you kind of add another layer to the pattern there. When I think about my first experiences of technology as a kind of young geek, there's an aroma in there which is more evocative than anything else, really, which I guess is the sort of vague, tangy, ozone hum that you get around computer fans and photocopiers and these big, chunky old machines that spewed out a kind of warm recycled air and you would crawl around on hands and knees in the back of these monstrosities um, to try and plug in leads. That sort of view of myself as, you know, a young teenager on my hands and knees probing around the back of a back of a server rack and kind of breathing in dust and recycled air and heat is is something that, you know, Takes me back to a state of slight bewildered wonder when it comes to technology. I love the idea that someone listening to this might pause and inhale their iPhone slightly. The best way to get it is the um, the pl- oh on the fours. There's more of a, you can get your nose better into the bottom. Technological newness is. An illusion that has to be strenuously maintained by constant updating. For things designed to be put in pockets, they sure get battered pretty rapidly and lose their kind of pristine newness. They make you want that newness all over again. And of course, when people are talking about newness, I always find they tend to talk about the smell. That kind of new, fresh from the packet, a kind of inert atmosphere, sort of ping this kind of zip when you open up and puncture the cellophane and open the box, and it has all that kind of factory fresh, and that's very quickly going to be rubbed away by life. Technostalgia is a funny thing. I think your phone from two years ago is an object of shame and contempt, and you can't wait to get rid of it. But your computer from 20 years ago is... A fetish is a little bit of childhood kind of reaching out and grabbing you. And again, there is this sort of olfactory disarmament, I guess, of your critical faculties. So I'm, I've got in my head now the black rubber of a ZX Spectrum with a little rainbow flash on the corner of it. And it has a sort of slightly sticker, sticky, rubbery smell from sweaty palms no doubt but also because it's a kind of magnet for all the other stuff in the room and I know that that computer is in my mother's loft acquiring other patterns of odor and that if I were to get it down it would be an intense sort of physical and sensory experience and it would be be like turning on a switch and I think we forget with technology that it calls us back to a time and place that is sort of lost but recaptured not intellectually but through the senses. I guess one of the funny things about this is that it's very, very ritualised as a process, the unboxing of new technology. And it's a highly conventionalized process in that people have certain unconscious but very, very firm expectations about the way that the materials of new tech and unboxing will smell. And I imagine that tech companies would be very concerned about anything that kind of damaged that new kind of virgin moment when you when you open it and you get your hands on it and people just expect it to to smell and be a certain way. Things like wearables and haptic kind of you know sort of touch sensitive technologies and technologies that are much more sensory and physicalized in their interface these are a kind of new arena where perhaps we get to make up the rules as we go along and perhaps people could be a bit more ambitious for having you know sort of something distinctive and different to do with them a lot of people now talk about sensory overload but they don't actually mean sensory overload they mean visual and oral overload and it seems to me that you know, a lot of a lot of the tech and stuff that excites me is partly about pushing back against this about trying to you know sort of stop overloading people's attention people's kind of eyes and ears with a simulcast bombardment But I do wonder whether emphasizing the other senses is another way of engaging with this, a sort of shift of resources within attention. Perhaps there's something a little bit more grounding about these other things. One of the blessings and curses of the screen of a mobile device is that it is always exactly the same, no matter where you are or what you're doing. And it will always bring you, sort of impeccably, all the stuff that you care about and find interesting and need for work and leisure. And so, in some senses, you're always at home with this. But then, in another sense, you're perhaps never challenged or discomforted or stretched enough to refine your sense of home into something really thickly experienced and grasped. I've got a um, two-year-old at home and you watch your child grasping the world. It's very noticeable that before they can focus their eyes on an object, they're totally dominated by smell and taste. The smell of milk, the taste of everything that they put in their mouths. I think... more fundamentally than crawling, well before they can crawl. You know, he won't eat a plate of fruit. He will go through a plate of raspberries, testing each one for texture and taste and aroma. Some will be chosen, some will be rejected. I have had to begin paying very close attention to the individual quality of raspberries, which is not something I did before. And, of course, it's not just... Him, who's been very close to aromas in the couple of years of nappy changing, has brought me fairly up close and personal to some intense aromatic experiences. My brother and I love making nests with cushions, with towels, with blankets, with things like that, with pretty much anything we can get our hands on. I think most kids do. And there was a kind of sort of increasingly fetid excitement to being in that space and the kind of mounting heat of it and the kind of person-ness of it. I'm always reminded of Ted Hughes's poem, The Thought Fox, which I heard Ted Hughes reading when I was very young. He did a school visit and it made a huge impression the quick hot stink of fox and he was a very visceral poet and it was this idea of an animal stink in a burrow that was at once slightly revolting and yet irresistibly creaturely and homely and comforting something that you could kind of hug to you to feel in touch with a place and your own embodied nature and I, I love building little dens with my, with my son now but he calls them igloos because of the curiously profound influence of a small book about penguins so we build igloos under blankets and then he goes fishing through holes in the ice and talks to a friendly seal joy is a really good word I think because joy is a feature of the experiencing self rather than the remembering self and when we remember joy we're just remembering something very intense that happened to us it happens and we cannot help but feel the way we do there is this sense of, sort of learning from watching and doing with a little creature that is of the moment, that is totally hostage to emotion and that sort of leads you to strongly suspect that we are also totally hostage to emotion in the moment. We just get better at pretending we're not. I've spent a lot of time crawling as well in the last couple of years and getting my nose very close to things. We have two cats and a dog. My dog tends to greet me with the nose in genital salutation and um, it's all very joyful actually and I can analyse it but there's a sort of animal melange of smells I associate with sort of being on the floor with my son and a marauding dog or two I've always been a virtual reality sceptic in that In general, it seems to me, the history of technology has been about people not seeking to escape the world entirely and opt out, so much as to augment and customise their experience of it. What people most like to do with phones is not sit at home, inert, tapping on a screen. It's go out and convert the stuff of their lives and experience into a currency of digital exchange, it's to meet up with people, but also to be talking to the people you're going to meet up with, or have just met up with, while you're meeting up with other people, and so on. So I think the idea that people are hungry en masse to exit the place they're in for somewhere totally other I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. But I do think the current wave of virtual reality innovations is very different to what came before because of the power and the increasing commoditization of the tools involved. I like to think of it as what you might call reality capture. You have a 360-degree visual array, and you just capture as much as you can of the of the light of the events within a space at a time and then having captured that you can replay it and re-explore it and re-inhabit it and relive it through any medium you like. Again, smell is a real challenge because smell capture as far as I know is not something people are doing at the moment and in fact what they do which is quite different to most other media is try and reproduce simplified kind of versions or suggestions like a kind of sketch. It reminds me of the weird way that when I went to kind of immersive, educative experiences when I was younger. And I'm thinking of pirate experiences and walk through the Canterbury Tales. They all had, as far as I can tell, exactly the same aroma, which in my mind is classified as medieval bullshit smell, which was a sort of vaguely toxic smoke whiff with undertones of metal which somehow was meant to transport you back to the past. And it's, the more you think about it, the weirder it is that this, as you say, mannered that grossly simplified gesture in the direction of some kind of weird generic past that never existed, that this was seen as the cutting edge of sensory immersion. And I don't think we've got past that yet. It's as if people have read an article somewhere that says smell evokes emotion. Smell is a vital sense in giving people a sense of reality, and then they've decided that what this means is making a smell that vaguely corresponds to three scribbled words vaguely related to the experience you're trying to create, that this is the cutting edge of sensory immersion, and that our brains will just go, yep, I'm totally immersed, when it's completely the opposite when you might as well have a sign saying bullshit reenactment alert. And I would say the complete opposite of that is when you visit an old building and the smell lingers in it of what it used to be used for. And then suddenly the past can just come and sort of sucker punch you. And the power of smell, which, you know, when we're talking about the, the failures, is really the fact that because you cannot help but have an intense reaction to it essentially if your intense reaction is this is bogus that is really that's a huge problem for the entire experience but i went to an old hop farm in kent near where i live which had some of the biggest oasts ever built it's not from that long ago in the past but you know some of the oasts stopped being used you know half a century or more ago but there is still the lingering bittersweet barn smell of oasts and crops and you know hints of horse and animal in the background and it's just immensely evocative of a sort of vanished or vanishing way of life and i think with castles and things like that sometimes you're just there on some ruins and obviously you don't have what i guess would have been the sort of choking stench of of life there but you get these kind of flashes of Sort of charcoal from an old fireplace, you get a sort of a slight kind of hint of burnt metal from a pot or something just sort of something that's there, and that feels very precious to me. And it's also not a universal kind of degradation fade of smell, so, an apple tree in the corner will be the same as the smell of the apple tree of the um, farmhand walking past on his way to work. I go to the churchyard in town where we live, and there's yew trees in it that are older than the church, which puts them at well over a thousand years old. And they have this you know, very rich, thick, musty, bitter, this very kind of powerful, choking smell. And that is that is how it would have smelled to stand there a thousand or so years ago. And it's of the place, and it's of the tree, um, and it's transporting in a way that's completely unassuming, that isn't seeking to force you into reaction, that isn't kind of strong-arming you into someone else's bullshit vision of authenticity. To make a slightly unusual analogy, I find there's parallels between smell and comedy. I always value comedy as a discipline and a sort of test because someone either finds something funny or they don't. And you can't say to someone, I know you didn't find that joke amusing, but let me explain it to you very carefully. And once I've finished explaining, you'll fall on the floor laughing. It's an arena which has a, a very pure sense of success or failure. Plenty of complexities involved, but you know, someone's laughing, if an audience is laughing, mission accomplished. If they're not, it doesn't matter if you've got a graph proving you're the funniest person in the universe, they're not laughing. Smell, I feel, is in a very similar area. Like play, it's something whose justification and whose reactions come above and before any attempt to explain them. Life in Sense